I started here, I don't know, four or five sermons ago now with a series through the Gospel of John. Y'all remember that? Yes? No? Maybe? Post-traumatic stress, you've tried to block it out of your mind? Understand? Here comes Bill preaching again. So we're going to continue that journey this morning. We're going to keep looking at John's Gospel, starting with chapter 2, verse 1, going through verse 12. And Alan let the cat out of the bag. This is the incident uh, with the wedding at Cana. And if you guys could turn me down just a smidge in the house and make sure I'm not in anything up here on the platform. Because I am really loud in my own ears, and that's impressive because I'm deaf as a post. Okay. Can you hear me in the house? Okay. Okay. That's fine. As long as everybody out there can hear me. I don't need to hear me. I know what's going on in here, and it's terrifying. So Alan let the cat out of the bag. This is the the wedding feast at Cana, and um, I'm going to tell you as I hit this, Okay, this is a Baptist church. I've preached this in Baptist churches before. I get the raised eyebrows. I get the uncomfortable stares. This is not the first time. So I'm going to be, I would be surprised if right now there aren't at least a few people out here who are concerned about what I have to say about wine. (gasps) He said the W word. And there are probably a few of you modern ladies out there who are eagerly awaiting how I handle Jesus calling his mother woman. And then there's probably a few who might be interested in the last part of this passage where it refers to Jesus' brothers, because I know that has caused controversy in the church as well. And there's more that are probably out there thinking, what is he rattling on about? Why doesn't he just go on and preach? Well, because I would be surprised if these thoughts are not in your head as I go through the passage, and I want you to know I'm going to address each one of them as they pop up, okay? So without making you wait any further, let's dive into the Scripture this morning. I'm going to ask you all to stand like we normally do. Remember, we're going to stand for God's Word because this ain't Bill's Word. I'm not responsible for this. Like I used to tell my students when I was teaching on base, I don't write the news, I just report it. So this is God's Word, and of course I'm reading from the NIV this morning, uh, because it was back there. So uh, John chapter 2, verse 1, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. 
Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Verse 12, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Please take your seats. So John refers to this in verse 11 as the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. Um, most theologians, of course, you can never get a unanimous consensus among theologians. Uh, it, it, even if the, the Greek word or the Hebrew word is completely and utterly without any kind of argument, Theologians will never agree completely on what it means. But most theologians consider that Jesus did seven major signs in John's gospel. From the rest of chapter 2 through chapter 12, we'll see the other six. This is the first one. I've already tested your memory by asking if you remember that we started this series. And some of you met me with blank stares, so I don't have high hopes when I ask this question. But do you remember why I decided to go through John's Gospel? Does anybody? No? Man, I am so disappointed. John chapter 20, verse 30, if you want to take a minute and flip there. John 20, 30. If you have a pen or a highlighter... You might want to highlight this verse because this is an extremely critical verse for John's gospel. This is part of the reason why when you have a new believer who says, I want to start reading the Bible, what book should I start with? Most of the time you give them the answer, start with the gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 30, John basically tells his readers that he was selective in the signs that he recorded because there were too many. And in verse 31, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did Jesus do these signs and why did John pick these ones to record? Because he wants his readers to know who Jesus is. Jesus didn't just do miracles because he was showing off. Okay? I'm sure you have heard the, the fables that, you know, Jesus was a little boy and he was alone and he was sad because he was alone, so he grabbed a handful of dirt and he turned it into a bird. That is completely bogus. That is not in line with the Jesus of Scripture. You've heard that the boys were bullying Jesus, and so he struck one of them down because he was being bullied. That is not Jesus. Okay? Jesus didn't do miracles to show off. He didn't do miracles to perform them for other people to see and say, wow, Jesus is a great guy, and he's got all kinds of magic powers. He didn't do them because he couldn't help it. Okay, there's some people who think that Jesus just, it, it, miracles just happened. He had no control over it. The signs that accompanied Jesus in his ministry were there for a specific reason. 
When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he wrote this, For Jews demand, a si- demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews seek after a sign. Why? Why would Paul write that? Well, first, Paul was a Jew, right? He, he knew what the Jewish people were looking for. Under the Mosaic law, one of the guidelines that was given to the people to judge a prophet was to see if what the prophet said came to pass. But if the prophet performed a miracle following their prophecy, and it was something that only God could do, that was basically God's seal of approval on the prophet's message. So why did the Jews seek after a sign? Because they wanted God's seal. It was a whole lot easier for God to say, this is my message and I approve it, versus waiting around for 10 or 15 years to see if what the prophet said came to pass. Many of Jesus' signs, many, are recorded either right after He's done some really big teaching or just before He has a confrontation with His enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes He does a big thing of teaching, He does a miracle, and then the Pharisees get in His face. Jesus' signs were God's stamp of approval. They were God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. They're just like John's vision of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. And so that's why he recorded these in his gospel. And John was Jewish. He may have been from Galilee, but he was of Hebrew descent. And so he knew that for many Jews who would read his account of Jesus' ministry, his gospel, that it would help them to understand who Jesus was if he recorded these signs. See, there's a reason for everything that's in here. Yeah, God inspired it. But God used the authors to write it. The inspiration of Scripture is not God sitting on John's shoulder telling him what words to put down on a piece of paper. That's called the dictation theory, and it has been widely and completely destroyed. That's not how God inspired Scripture. He used the history of the writers. He used their background. That's why the Gospels don't match one another word for word for word. Have you noticed that there is a difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I hope so. This is, this is a good place to nod. Okay, I'm, I'm checking with y'all. Here's, here's the normal Bill Sunday morning check. Take your left hand, stick it out in front of you. Come on. Now take your right hand, take your index finger and your middle finger, go like this. Now I want you to take them and put them right here just behind your thumb. Make sure you have a pulse. If you don't, let us know so we can call 911. I would like you to respond to me, okay? Thank you. 
John knew that his readers would need something to give them confidence in what he wrote. Matthew wrote his gospel predominantly for Gentiles. Why? He was a tax collector. He worked for the Romans. He collected taxes, and the Jews had just about completely cut him off from society. Mark wrote his gospel with a very Roman bent. Luke wrote his gospel with a very Greek perspective because he traveled around with Paul to most of the Greek colonies, which the Romans had taken over. John was a Jewish fisherman. We don't have any missionary journeys recorded for John. We know John lived a long life. We know the Romans tried to stop that, right? If you read the account of the tortures that John went through, John was a Jewish fisherman, and so he wanted to cement the validity of Jesus' message in the mind of the readers and the hearers of his gospel. He wanted them to know Jesus is the Christ. Not to think, not to suppose, not to guess. He wanted them to know Jesus is the Christ. Now we can actually get into the text. Woo! What's the most important interpretive rule of Scripture? I heard it. Context, context, context. you got to know the context of the Scripture that you're reading. You cannot pull a Scripture out of context and expect it to make sense. So, we know who the author was, John, a Jewish fisherman. We know what the setting was. We're in Galilee, specifically the town of Cana, and there is a wedding. Weddings are a great time of celebration. In the Jewish culture, a wedding could last for a week or more. I'm really glad we are not in the Jewish culture. I still have one daughter to marry off. (laughs) I expect she's at church right now. She is not watching this on YouTube. I'm not afraid of saying that. We know that Mary was invited to the wedding. So it would be easy to presume that she was either a close friend or a family member of the folks that were being wed. Because she was from Galilee. Hard to remember that because we think of Mary in conjunction with Bethlehem. But if you remember correctly, that's because Joseph's family was from Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary were from Galilee. Nazareth, to be specific. And so they were, Mary was at the wedding. Jesus was at the wedding with his disciples. All the disciples he had called to this point, and Jesus went to the wedding. Which may have contributed to them running out of wine. Because if Jesus was invited and all of a sudden he brought a plus 12, that's a lot more wine. Right? It was probably a three or four day celebration. We don't know what day of the celebration this was on. Uh, probably day three or four. There would be lots of dancing, lots of food, and lots of wine. 
that first concern that the old hat Baptists are going to have, the W word, wine. It was fermented, alcoholic grape juice. There were a lot of reasons for the presence of wine, okay, one of which would be because sanitary drinking water was scarce. If you have ever been to the desert, sanitary drinking water is still scarce. And so wine was used because the alcohol would kill bacteria and other unpleasantness that would be in your beverage. And so sometimes the wine was watered down, or I should say the water was wined up in order to kill the bacteria. Another reason for wine was because it was plentiful. There were a lot of vineyards in the Middle East. Uh, The Napa Valley of California has a very similar climate to Palestine. And so they grow a lot of grapes. The other reason that makes us cringe in our Baptistness is that wine and the accompanying loosening of inhibitions caused by the alcohol are pleasant. (gasps) The preacher just said wine's enjoyable. It's a fact. If it was not enjoyable, people would not drink it. Now, I didn't say it was enjoyable for everybody. I personally cannot stand wine. (laughs) Don't like it at all. Just don't. Now, here's the part that we have a real hard time wrapping our heads around because of our history. And I keep picking on Baptists, okay? Part of that is because, uh, and Danny has pointed it out, we call ourselves the people of the book, right? The people of the book. What book? The Bible, okay? So we're the people of the book, but we will add to it all day long. When I was in high school, before I was a Christian, okay, I grew up in a very moral area. Most of the people were very upright and moral people. Lying was frowned upon. Stealing was frowned upon. Um, That didn't mean we were Christians by any stretch of the imagination. Not at all. There were a few. And I'm going to pick on somebody in this room right now (laughs) because I used to pick on them when we were in school. See, because because almost exactly 30 years ago, uh, sorry, 33 years ago, when we started dating, and I'm pointing back there to my wife, she attended a Baptist church. And you want to know what everybody knew about Baptists? You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't play cards, and alcohol is forbidden. And that is a universal truth that everybody knows about Baptists. Well, it didn't take me long dating her before I figured out that wasn't true. <laughs> so her family plays cards all the time. Some of the family members smoke. She was never forbidden from going to a dance with me. And I imagine there are a few of the family members that have the occasional alcoholic beverage. Gasp. Here's the thing. Nothing in Scripture tells you not to drink. 
tells you not to be drunk. If you have a problem putting the brakes on when you drink, I advise you not to drink. If you have an addictive personality type in which you pick something up and then you cannot let it go for the rest of your life, I advise you not to drink. If you have to drink until you cannot remember things, don't drink. Seek assistance. The fact of the matter is, when Jesus was at this wedding, He would have enjoyed the wine. He would have had a glass of wine with His meal. He would have had a glass of wine with every meal. He wouldn't have been drunk. He would have had a glass of wine with His mother and the other disciples and the other wedding guests. There would have been dancing. I know this is going to throw everybody's picture right out the window, but Jesus probably danced. There would have been laughter. And I guarantee you Jesus would have laughed. We get this picture of Jesus that He was always so somber. And I know this is a little bit sarcastic, but how could He spend three years with Peter and not laugh? Many, 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 many Christians use wine in communion. They may even have it in the fellowship hall for a potluck after the service. That makes us uncomfortable. But you got to know your history, folks. Unfermented grape juice was impossible until Mr. Welch created the method for pasteurizing it in 1869. The only way to have unfermented grape juice before that was to drink it straight out of the grape. You know why Mr. Welch created his grape juice? Because his dad was an alcoholic. Because he wanted his father to be able to take communion and not be tempted back into the bottle. So that's why he created Welch's grape juice. Didn't know that, did you? Mm-hmm. So here, at this wedding, the wine flowed freely. Freely enough that they ran out. Now, Alan mentioned that this would be embarrassing to the host, right? And I thought, how can I, how can I illustrate how embarrassing this would be? And then it dawned on me, Right, right now the seafood festival is going on. We have a festival like every other week. We got a barbecue festival that takes place down on the town green. We got the seafood festival. Could you imagine how embarrassing it would be for the coordinators of the crawfish festival? Okay? We're on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. It's the crawfish festival. Halfway through day one, there is not a crawfish to be found. Man, now I don't know if you like crawfish or not. I like crawfish. But that would be mortifying to have sold tickets 
and had people from all over the state and out of state show up and there's no crawfish. And so the parents of the bride and the groom, the host of the wedding, is facing this issue that there is still a day or two left of the wedding feast and we're out of wine. We've already said that the water probably wasn't sanitary to drink. What are they going to drink? So Mary comes to Jesus and says they ran out of wine. I don't know what she expected Jesus to do. Because to the best of our knowledge, historically, up till this point, Jesus had not done anything miraculous. Nothing. So this could have been as simple as, Jesus, you brought these extra 12 guys and now they've run out of wine. Y'all need to go find a remedy for the situation. Go to the package store. Whatever. I don't know. Was she expecting the disciples to go get more? Was she expecting Jesus to convince everybody to leave? Was she expecting Jesus to do something miraculous? I don't know. The text doesn't tell me that. And so I have to be careful not to add things that the text doesn't tell me. Now... The text does tell me how Jesus responds. And I'm glad I read it in the, the NIV this morning. Okay, because the NIV was really a whole lot better than like every other translation out there. But I've got to tell you, if I ever addressed my mother, my aunts, my grandmothers in the way that reads like every other translation, I would not be standing here in front of you right now. Because every other translation says, Woman, what does this problem have to do with me? <laughs> For those of you who know my wife, how mild-mannered she is, how sweet and loving and kind she is, I can tell you I'd probably have to visit the dentist. The problem is how it reads in English today versus what it meant. And that's what I like about the NIV here because it says, Dear woman. That kind of softens it a little bit. Because when it just says woman, it comes across a little sassy, a little bit disrespectful, especially being his mom. But it's it's more along the lines of, ma'am, what what do you want me to do? What what how is this my problem? I mean that's that's not disrespectful. It's the host of the wedding who's responsible for providing wine. What, what, what do you want me to do? And we get caught up because of, because of that English phrasing, we get caught up on Jesus' response. And we miss the most important thing that he says. Take a look at verse 4 in John chapter 2. The first part that we get stuck on, dear woman, why do you involve me? And then the important part, my time has not yet come. Some translations say my hour has not yet come. 
specifically in John's gospel, but throughout the rest of the gospels as well, most of the times that Jesus refers to His hour, He is not talking about His hour to perform miracles. He's not talking about His hour of ministry. He is talking about the culmination of His mission. He's talking about His death, burial, and resurrection. The finished work. My hour is not yet come. And that's the important thing. Because he looks at Mary and he says, why do you involve me in this? It, it's not my time yet. What does that have to do with wine? What does that have to do with a wedding feast? What does that have to do with anything? Well, see, Mary was telling Jesus that he needed to do something. Jesus was telling Mary, you're not in charge of my timeline anymore, mother. I'm operating on the Father's will. I am operating according to my Father's schedule. And this ain't my time yet. Doesn't mean he's not going to do anything. Obviously, because he does. He responds. But what he's telling her and what he's telling us is that she's not in charge. Just like back when in, in his childhood, when the family visited the temple. And I know everybody loses their minds. So well, how, how do you forget your kid at the temple? Okay? Yeah. Go read the stories on the internet of the people who forgot that they took their kids shopping with them. Or the person who left his wife at the rest area driving down the interstate. You know, they're on a long road trip. They go in the rest area. She takes a couple extra minutes. He's down the highway. They went to the temple. Mary's group and Joseph's group finished at the temple. They went and they met up a couple of days outside of town. And Joseph thought Mary had him, and Mary thought Joseph had him, and it turned out nobody had him. He was back at the temple. How does that happen? That's just neglect. No. Jesus was roughly 12 years old at that point in time. According to Jewish tradition, he was on the cusp of, you know, whether it was just before or just after, he was on the cusp of his bar mitzvah. He was on the cusp of becoming a man. If it was before, he could not go further than the court of the women in the temple. So he would have been with Mary's group. If it was after, he would have been allowed to go further with Joseph's group. And and I don't know about y'all, okay? I, four kids. Remembering birthdays is hard, right? Remembering facts and details and stuff, especially when there's something big going on, is hard. And so Joseph assumed that he was with Mary at the temple because every other time they'd gone to the temple, he was with Mary. And Mary's group assumed he just went through his bar mitzvah. He was with Joseph. In the meantime, Jesus had gone off someplace and was talking to the scholars. And when they came back and they started to get on his case for not being with either group, what did he say? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? 
Jesus was here to do his father's will. Not even his own will. Remember his prayer in the garden before the crucifixion. He is, he is standing there. He is terrified of what is about to come because he was fully human. He knew this death coming down the road to him was painful and undeserved and that he had no desire to go through what he was about to go through. And so when he stood there and he prayed in anguish and just prayed and prayed and prayed, what did he ask? If there is any other way. Father, if there is some other way we can do this, now's the time. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. So Jesus was not here to do Jesus' will. He was not here to do Mary's will. He was here to do the Father's will. Now, he wasn't disrespecting, uh, disrespecting Mary by... Um, telling her that she doesn't get to dictate what he does. He wasn't in violation of the fifth commandment, dishonoring his mother. He, he did take action to remedy the situation, so he did fulfill her request. Um, but if she had requested something that was outside of God's will, would it have been better for him to do it or not? If she had asked him to do something that God expressly forbid, would it have been better for him to do it, to honor his mother, or not? Not. We're commanded to obey the authorities over us, right? Scripture tells us we are to obey the government authorities. I know that people hate that. I'm a government employee. (laughs) Okay? Every one of us rebels. Because I can almost bet you that somebody in here this morning went more than 35 miles an hour on Pass Road. It was me. I'll admit it. We're commanded to obey those laws. But if those laws forbid us from gathering to worship... That's where the command stops. We're prohibited from following governmental commands that violate God's command. Clearly violate. You gotta be careful with that. If my mother asks me to do something that is outside of God's will, if, if, if my mother came to, and this would be an indication that she needs to be treated for Alzheimer's, but if she ever came to me and said, you need to leave that wife of yours, <laughs> and she's probably watching on YouTube shaking her head. If she ever did that, it would not be dishonoring for me to tell her, no, I'm not going to do that. So, Jesus does it. He fixes the wine situation. He tells the servants, take the six stone water jars, roughly 25 gallons each. Scripture says between 20 and 30 gallons. So 25 gallons-ish. I don't know. And fill them with water. These jars were for the purification rites of the Jews. Now, throughout the law, you know we have different... The law is broken into different pieces, right? Right? You have the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. That's pretty clear. That's, that's easy. 
But then you have the ceremonial laws, you have the cleanliness laws, you have the religious laws. Um, in this particular case, these were the ceremonial laws. Um, there were a lot of cases where before you went into a situation to worship or to do something along the lines of making a sacrifice or an offering, you had to go through a ceremonial cleansing because certain things made you ceremonially unclean. Right? If you came into contact with a dead animal, you were unclean. Butchers had a real hard time with this. If you were a woman who had had a child for a certain period of time, you were unclean. Uh, if you were a woman who was without child, but it was just happened to be that time of your cycle, you were unclean and you had to go through a purification ritual. There are all kinds of different reasons you had to be purified in these stone jars were to hold the water for those rituals. Jesus used them for something else. Because what does ceremonially clean mean? Think about the think about the ceremonial law. Okay, you have to wash your hands seven times in this bucket of water. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Has something magical happened to my hands? No, depending on how long I washed, they might have shriveled up a little bit, right? They're probably pale looking. Depending on the soap, I might have a little breakout on my skin. But there's nothing different about my hands. They're clean from dirt, but they're still attached to somebody who's sinful and dirty and corrupt. But we'll come back to that. So Jesus had the servants fill the jars. They filled the jars. Jesus said, okay, now that you filled them up with water, I want you to take some of that water and I want you to serve it to the host. So they take the water out and they take it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast, um, it blew his mind. He was astounded. Why? Number one, he thought they were out of wine. <laughs> somebody had come and told him we're out of wine. That's why Mary came to Jesus. We're out of wine. All of a sudden, the servant comes up with a glass of wine. Second reason he was astounded, because it was the best wine he'd ever tasted. Here's the best part. There were only a handful of people who knew where this wine came from. Jesus, the servants... And presumably the disciples, Mary had walked off. Presumably the disciples knew. But we know for certain Jesus and the servants knew. The host was so blown away, he summoned the groom to compliment the vintage and tell him how odd it was to save the best of the wine for the late part of the celebration because normally you would have a very small amount of the good stuff. So everybody was like, oh, we're going to get the good wine. And they start drinking the good wine. And then when their tongue goes numb from the alcohol in the good wine, then you start bringing out the less expensive stuff, right, that tastes like paint thinner because they can't taste it that well. And you serve the cheap stuff. But this was wine that was the best. And then the last bit, 
That last thing I told you you were interested in probably. John says this was the first of Jesus' signs. It was done in Cana of Galilee. It manifested Jesus' glory. His disciples believed in Him. Then He and His disciples went to Capernaum and stayed with His mother and brothers for a few days. Wait, Jesus had brothers? But I thought His mom was the Virgin Mary. Till she had Jesus. There is absolutely, positively, zero scriptural evidence or common sense evidence to assume that Mary and Joseph never consummated their relationship. None. The idea of Mary's perpetual virginity came about because of the theology of St. Augustine. And if you know anything about St. Augustine, he was a cad, he was a scoundrel, he was a womanizer, and he was addicted, literally addicted to sex. One of his best known prayers is, Lord, make me a chaste man. Not now. <laughs> and so when he was saved and when he became a priest, he had a hard time reconciling sex within the confines of marriage and lust. He couldn't separate them. And so, he helped develop the doctrine that the only way that marital unions were any way, shape, or form acceptable before God was because you were married, and that's why it's a sacrament of the Catholic Church. And then the Pope came along and people started asking questions. Well, you know, if Joseph and Mary were married then that means that Mary sinned, but if she was a sinner, then how could she have a sinless child in Jesus? And so eventually the perpetual virginity of Mary was created. It is not scriptural. These were Jesus' half-brothers, like James. Now, remember how I said that most of Jesus' signs accompanied teaching or an encounter with authorities? This one doesn't. This one stands all on its own. Except for that one little phrase that I told you we skip over. Probably the most important thing that Jesus has said in this gospel to this point. It is not yet my hour. I am following the Father's timeline. I am doing God's will. And because he did something miraculous, that wasn't just a statement. Because what he did was in line with God's will. Therefore, it was God's stamp of approval. Jesus is doing my will. Just like he said at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And this showed Jesus' glory. 
in a small part to the disciples who John then says believed in Jesus. The Jewish disciples, they saw the sign. They believe the teaching. You might not have ever considered this, but I brought it up at the beginning of the sermon. Where did this happen? Was it in the temple at Jerusalem? No. Was it outside the temple in Jerusalem? No. Was it in Judea? No. It was in Galilee. Little, little quick geography lesson for you, okay? Palestine is, is like this. It's, it's like, you know, just kind of think of an oval right here, okay? At the bottom half of the oval is Judea. The top half, the bottom quarter, or bottom half of the top half, is Samaria. The top quarter is Galilee. This took place in Galilee. Galilee, which was populated by a bunch of Gentiles, as well as Jews. It was a very mixed place. In fact, it was a lot like the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. Who witnessed this miracle? A handful of servants and presumably Jesus' disciples. Not the priests, not the Levites, not the religious folks, not the bride, not the groom, not the host, not even Mary. The only people that saw this miracle were the common people. Jesus didn't, when he was born, right, his circumstances, think, think to Christmas, think to all those songs that we sing, right? He was, he was born and laid in a manger. He was in a cattle stall. It was probably a cave. How many of you have ever been in a cattle stall? Come on, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've been in a cattle stall. Does it smell like baby powder? Does it smell like a maternity ward? <laughs> no. I'll tell you what, though. To a farm kid, it's one of the most pleasing aromas on the face of the planet. I'm weird. Jesus wasn't born to the religious elite. He was born to a plain old ordinary couple. The gospel message is not for the religious elite. The gospel message is for the ordinary people. There is no such thing as religious elite. Do you know what separates me from you right now? As, as the pastor, as, as, as the preacher, as the guy who's filling the pulpit, as the guy who has an official certificate, well, I don't have a certificate of ordination because Pam lost it. I, I, I have a certificate of licensing, and I do have a, a memory of being ordained. Um, so, you know, take my word for it. I've been ordained. Okay, I'm licensed in the state of Mississippi, right? What makes me different 
from anybody out here. Hmm? Which I hate. Willingness? Willingness? Obedience. Because I got tired of God going, this is the call on your life. That's the only difference. God's called me to this. What ministry has he called you to? Ooh. Stop. Stomping on toes. Has he called you to a ministry? Is there anybody in here who does not think God has ever called them to a ministry? Raise your hand. Chickens. Okay, then that means there better be a whole lot of ministry going on outside these walls. We need to take up a list. Every believer is called to a ministry of some sort. When I first read through this passage... I really thought, oh, great. It's the turning the water into wine. Everybody knows this. I've actually, uh, when I was up in, in Gulfport at Olivet, I've actually lost church members because of this passage. Because they just could not handle the idea of wine be accept, being acceptable. Oh, man... I don't want to. God, do I have to? But then as I read it, and I thank Alan for uh, almost stealing my thunder with the children's moment. As I read it, the thing that kept coming to mind was the idea of changing the old into the new. You might have noticed that theme in the responsive reading. Out with the old, in with the new. These jars existed because of the law of Moses. And the law's interpretation at that point re required a reminder for people that they had to be spiritually clean before coming before God. And so the jars provided that holy water. As Danny said, they were that Ebenezer. They were the, the stone of remembrance for what God commands is that in order to come into His presence, we have to be holy. In order for us to come before God, we have to be clean. That water didn't provide it. It wouldn't clean you from your sins. It might make you clean from dirt, but it would not clean you from sin. But then I got thinking that even that symbol of cleanliness was a measure of God's grace. Because God could have said, you will never be clean enough to come into my presence. You will never be clean enough to worship me in a worthy fashion. And so I'm just going to leave you all alone. But he didn't, did he? Even more, he could have said, you know what? Y'all are just so sinful and filthy You're all gone. But instead, he has, he's held off on his righteous 
anger towards us. Our rightly deserved punishment. He's held that off because of His promise, because of His grace. He's not slow to wrath. He hasn't forgotten. Trust me, God is not up there with you know a, a, a to-do list popping up on His Apple Watch that says, oh, hey, in, in 2025... You need to destroy the earth. That's, that's not how this works. He's not slow to anger. He desires man to be saved through faith in his son, Jesus. Danny has been reminding us by going through the book of Galatians that God showed grace in spite of Israel's often lacking and, to be honest, somewhat sketchy understanding of the law. The Jews understood very clearly that if you're going to be acceptable to God, you've got to be Jewish. <laughs> and so the Judaizers went to these new Christians up in Galatia, and they were like, look, believing in Jesus is great, but you've got to be Jewish, because he's a Jewish Messiah. God showed grace in the sacrificial system that pointed Israel to the coming Messiah. He showed grace through the ceremonial law of clean foods and purification practices, such as those represented by the stone jars. God has shown a whole bunch of grace. And here in this account, Jesus took that old purification ritual, the water in the stone jars. He took the Father's grace. And he showed greater grace. He turned it into something new. He turned it into the new best wine. Soon all of the sacrifices to atone for sin, all the offerings to restore fellowship with God, all the rituals to make people clean enough to be acceptable in God's presence would be made obsolete. That step of God's grace looking forward to Jesus' coming, was done. Jesus is God's grace. That's why the message of the Judaizers of the first century, the message of the legalists, and dare I say the prosperity preachers of the 21st century, is so much poison to the church. Either Jesus was sufficient to save or he wasn't. Either Jesus was enough, or he wasn't. Period. If you have to add one behavior, one behavior, you have to be a Christian and, fill in the blank, folks, fill in the blank. And I know we all, we all, I, look, we are all sitting here thinking, well, that's just foolish. I would never do that. You have never thought a Christian should not A Christian shouldn't go to the casino. Christian shouldn't drink. Christian shouldn't smoke. Christian shouldn't eat too much either. I guess there is a good reason for the podium. <laughs> it hides the evidence. 
if you have to add one behavior, if you have to add one ritual, you've got to believe in Jesus and be baptized. No. You've got to believe in Jesus and be in church every time the doors are open. No. If you have to add one ceremony, if you have to add anything to the gospel, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are saying that He is not sufficient. If your salvation can be said to be by faith plus anything, then you have no salvation at all. Instead, because of Christ, the old man is dead. I love that. The old man is dead. He just doesn't realize it yet. And we are a new creation. The old is dead. We are made new. Created in Christ for the good works that He has ordained beforehand for us to do. So let me ask you again. Have you been called to a ministry? That may, that ministry may have something to do with your line of work. If you were a nurse, if you were a school teacher, if you were a bus driver, that may be your ministry. It might not be. Fact. If you've been called to a ministry, that's the good work that Jesus has ordained beforehand for us to do. Are we doing it? I know we've all been called to the ministry of witnessing to what Jesus has done, right? Now everybody gets quiet with the nods. <laughs> we've all been called to the ministry of making disciples, right? Hmm. Anybody know how many people this sanctuary can seat? The number is roughly 600. Does anybody know what we're averaging on a Sunday morning right now? 45. 45 and about four on YouTube. Do we have a ministry in this community? Do we have a ministry where we live? Because you might not live in this community. I mean, long gone are the days that everybody attends the church next door to their house. Unlike me. <laughs> so let's trade in the old for the new. Let's take what we've known to heart. And as a bonus, I want you to know that there is nowhere, anywhere in the Bible that tells us that there's a retirement age. 
So if, when I had everybody check their pulse earlier, you still have one, you're on the hook. So am I. So let's start living like a new creation. We cannot go back to the golden age. We cannot go back to the 70s when the churches were full. Oh, by the way, if the churches were really full in the 70s, they'd be full now. Birth rates have gone up. In the 2000s, they stagnated a little bit. But if the church was really full of believers back then, it'd be full now. So maybe it wasn't all that great. We just had a bunch of blue laws in place that said the only thing you can do on Sunday is go to church. There were no sporting events. Most of the restaurants were closed. Most of the stores were closed. If you wanted to meet with people and visit with people, you came to church. We don't have that anymore. And the population of the Gulf Coast, the the millennials, I know that's a dirty word, but we've got to face it, they're 30 years old now. (laughs) The millennials, (laughs) the post-millennials, the Gen Z, uh, the Gen whatever they are, they have said what they're interested in is an authentic relationship with Christ, an authentic faith. Are we showing that to the world that we live in? I'm going to call the ushers up because otherwise I could stand here and talk all day. And I've already told Kirsten I'm not going to do that. So, ushers, if you would come up to take up our offering, please.